Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. In my home on a Sunday afternoon and cold January day recording this podcast in person is my friend Tanya Baker-Miller. Welcome to the podcast, Tanya. Thank you, Richard. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of introduction about Tanya, and then you, then I'll turn it over to Tanya to see if I got most of that right. Um, Tanya is a, a clinical social worker, and um, she got her undergraduate from BYU and a master's in social work from the University of Utah. And um, she is a married mother of four children. Her husband's here with us today. Um, and her son, Andy, the oldest of their four children, was on episode 382. You could check that out. Andy's a gay Latter-day Saint. And um, Tanya's going to talk about families that have what may be called a crisis of faith and um, are working to keep the family circled together, but wanting to continue to participate with the church, but may have questions about how to make that work. And from her clinical perspective, from her firsthand experience as a mother and as a parent, she has some really wonderful insights. So this podcast, if you're in a crisis of faith, if you're a parent working to keep your family circled together and trust and confidence and vulnerability and communication, this podcast will be helpful for you. If you um, want to continue to stay involved with the church and are looking for tools and principles that help you navigate that path forward, I think Tanya will have some insights for you. If you have family members that have left the church, um, I think she'll have principles and insights that help keep the family circled together. Um, even when the reality of that becomes part of your family. Um, also, Tanya um, and her son, Andy, and I, maybe the whole family were on one of the original um, churches, Mormon and Gay Stories. It came out in October of 2016. That's a long time ago. One of the very first stories the church published called Tanya's Story. And that's her story as mom of a gay son. So is that okay for an introduction? That was great. Yes. Anything you kind of want to add or clarify, especially the scope of the podcast before, because you know it better than I do, before listeners dive in, I just want to make sure that they know kind of an idea of what you're going to share. Yeah, thank you. Um, so what you said is is perfect. Um, I do want to challenge the idea a little bit that we are dealing with faith crises, um, that maybe we over use that term um and and there's a possibility that what we have in what we are experiencing instead are related to trust issues or we could even call it a, a trust crisis and um framing it that way i think opens so many um inroads really to healing that um we maybe can't notice if we are functioning in the space of thinking that I can't have my faith um, and good. this church. That's good. And you, your station with the church is an active Latter-day Saint. Yes, it is. So I think it's good our listeners know this is coming from someone who's in the church and is sharing these principles from perspective as an active Latter-day Saint. Thank you. Yes. Um, and, and I should note today too, the, um, I have some lived experiences to share. Um, I listen to so many stories and every story is sacred in my opinion. Um, there are some examples that 
I am also going to share from from friends. Um, they will remain anonymous, and some of the details will be changed, and everything is with their permission. Um, I want to point out, though, um, for listeners to know that all of the quotes or stories that I share um, are from people who are active in the church and um, and are trying to navigate the space uh, between the uncertainties around the around just what the optics are of having a family that um, doesn't fit a certain pattern or mold and being part of this community, this religious community. Perfect. So, so glad you're on the podcast. I'll just turn it over uh, to you. Okay. To go for it. <laughs> so, so um, for, I think that the principle I want to start with or the, the observation I should say, and, and that is what I do. I, I observe things. I'm, I don't have judgment around uh, the things I want to describe and talk about. These are observations. I think sometimes when we, when we step into this type of discussion, uh, we are almost on autopilot, right? I, I, you know, you might hear this is who Tanya is and she, so I can predict what she will say based on what I've heard or, um, and I, I might do the same. And so I want to put it out there that this isn't, this is a judgment free space. These are observations. Um, so that maybe people can just relax. And so it's, it's kind of based on the idea that the way I would frame it is that, um, um, in, in the people I know and the stories I'm going to share the, it, it seems that the general church's guidance around faith-based issues, it tends to be kind of formulaic rather than individualized. Um, and I will talk a lot about that. Um, and I think I'm going to dig in with the the first, my first lived experience with this. Um, and it was quite a, quite a long time ago. Um, it would have been in the late 90s. So um, we were living in student housing at the U of U. Dylan was in medical school. I worked evenings and weekends in the psych unit. We had we were juggling two kids. Um, my younger brother, he's six years younger, um, had just left to serve a mission in Brazil, and um, probably six months earlier. And I get a call one day. He and I are pretty close. And I get a call, and he said, "Hey, I need you to pick me up in the airport in, in, at the airport in three hours." And I said, okay, like what? Well, see you then. <laughs> I just didn't, I had no, I didn't ask anything. Um, I just, I mean, I just wondered if he was sick or what the deal was. Um, so, and I, I am fuzzy on a lot of these details. It was a long time ago and I wasn't privy to all of the um, experiences that he or my parents were having in this time. But what I, what I recall being told was he had left the MTC, been in Brazil for less than two weeks and was mugged. Um, and it really, really created a lot of pain for him. That was a, he, as anyone would, I think that vulnerability and I mean, he was traumatized and, um, spoke to his mission president who said, want you to stay tried really. I mean, I, I just think he was so traumatized. He, he wasn't doing well with the language. He was very unhappy. Uh, they sent him, they reassigned him to somewhere in California and he worked there with someone as kind of a self-styled therapist and they called it forgiveness therapy, which I, I can't even imagine what that was. And um, 
it, it wasn't useful to him. Um, and I guess the day came that he said, I'm, I'm either going to step in front of a bus or I'm going to buy a plane ticket. And I'm so glad I'll be forever thankful that he bought a plane ticket Agreed. and called me up. Um, so, but he didn't tell anybody else. So I pick him up at the airport and I think I'm taking him to my parents' house. And he said, can I just stay with you for a while? And, um, so for about three months, he was with us. My, um, my poor parents, they, um, I, they, my mom decided she didn't want him to come home. She didn't want him to be seen. She didn't want him to be judged. I think, um, she, she knew we had, we had family and you know, the ward nearby. And I think she felt so protective of him that that made sense to her. Um, and my, my dad went along with that. I remember there were times he would go to talk to his state president and, um, and he, he never came back very happy. The goal was to get him back out into the mission field. Um, and, and I, and eventually he went, he, they reassigned him yet again to somewhere near Washington, DC. And, um, I was really critical of, of my, my my parents, who I now see, they were operating from so much fear. They had no idea what to do. And they were, um, they wanted what they believed was best for him. And especially at that time, you know, late 90s, there was so much shame and stigma um, around, or so much more, I should say, shame and stigma around any kind of early return missionary and around mental health challenges. Um, so, you know, he did, he went back, I mean, sheer grit, I'm sure got him through it. And, and you can kind of guess where the story goes within a few years after returning, he's, he really differentiated himself from the church. And, and I know that it was really hard on his relationship with my parents. Um, there's some abandonment themes there that, um, I'm sure could be explored, the the thing about that story is it didn't need to happen that way had there been a way to manage whatever was happening for him in an individualized way rather than the formulaic approach of well you know when there's a missionary that does this then we do this and and i i'm fairly sure that when he was working with the state president it was around um repentance issues that he had left and that um that makes me really sad because he was in so much pain um so without realizing it that was my first introduction to um to the possibility there might not offer the patterns that families need to handle whatever comes their way and um, the other stories that I'll share are similar in, in that regard. I'm, you know, I think it's great you shared that story just to sort of frame up what you're going to share for the rest of the podcast. That's a tender story. Yeah. And um, I sort of imagine you have used student housing. I can see it along Foothill Drive. <laughs> and these years where you're really busy with a couple of kids and helping your brother and being a safe place for your brother. but. You introduced a word that no one's ever shared with me before, formula, 
formulamatic. I'm sure oh, it's a clinical yeah. word. Formulaic, yeah. Formulaic versus yeah. individualized. And I that resonates with me because I just think sometimes we have these formulas that when people are in a certain spot, we sort of have these formulas to get them out of that spot. And sometimes that's probably okay, but I think the principles of personal revelation and uniqueness and individuality require us to have maybe a principles-based approach and an individualistic-based approach. You also said something really interesting is sometimes the patterns, I, I won't say it as well as you did, but the patterns that our family structure works in may need to be different than the patterns the overall church infrastructure works in. And there may be more need for customization, individualization, and the church as an institutional worldwide church doesn't perhaps have the flexibility or the, the ability to do that like we need to do in our families. So keep, sh- I'm really excited to hear the rest of your st- what you're <laughs> okay. going to share with us. So, yeah. So based on that idea that, um, and, and, and I will say, I, I don't think it, um, this isn't a criticism of the way that the general church operates. When we dig in a little bit into ways that trust is repaired, that's just not the relationship that individuals have or can have with um, with an entity such as the, and I'm going to say the institutional church. I think it's okay to use that phrase, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. So, um Let's jump really quickly, if we could just look at, because I want to differentiate between faith and trust. Um, I think we often um, use the two words interchangeably, uh, but the, the concepts are, um, are, are very different. Um, there's, a, there's a developmental psychologist, um, his, name's, his name is James Fowler, and he, um, maybe, maybe you're familiar with his stages of faith. Yeah, so it's a fascinating um, body of work that he he combined or he he built off of um, other developmental theorists um, to say that just as there is epigenetic development for the way our brains develop or the way we develop psychosocially or the way that morality develops, there is a a similar developmental process for faith in our lives. Um, and so, uh, he, he, in fact, I'm going to read a quote, if that's okay, from, from his book, uh, Stages of Faith. And, and in this, he is referring to someone named, a theologian named Richard Niebuhr. Uh, this is what James Fowler said. He sees faith taking form in our earliest relationships with those who provide care for us in infancy. He sees faith growing through our experiences of trust and fidelity and of mistrust and betrayal with those closest to us. He sees faith in the shared visions and values that hold human groups together, and he sees faith at all those levels in the search for an overarching, integrating, and grounding trust in a center of value and power sufficiently worthy to give our lives unity and meaning. Faith is a universal concern. Um, With that lens, we can go a lot further in understanding um, the overlap between trust and faith and um, and what it is that's happening when, when someone, the optics of their faith, the, the way they live their faith, um, evolve over time. Um, and, you know, if we look at trust, and this, 
this is a pretty basic definition, belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. Um, trust begins in infancy. When we're talking about those developmental stages, Eric Erickson's psychosocial um, stages of development, trust versus mistrust is the very first stage. And it occurs zero to 18 months when um, a child is learning that their caregiver is responsive. So is my caregiver reliable? If I cry, do they come? If I need comfort, will they give it? Um, and, and from there, um, we continue to grow and develop. Um, so given those two ideas, that there's overlap, but not, um, not everything is, is exactly the same between faith and trust. Um, then we can look at say, okay, what's happening for my brother? Um, he began with a with a trust crisis. He did not know who to trust, who who would watch out for him and help him. He was so disoriented and confused, and he turned to the systems, meaning the family and the church, that theoretically were in place to provide that for him, and and found that they were not reliable actually, given the circumstances that he was in, that faith crisis or that, that trust issue, that trust crisis in his case, definitely evolved into a, a crisis of faith. Um, had my family had the, the, just the resources to say, let's repair here. We can do stuff in our family that the church can't do. Let's let's make this better with with us. Um, I think that would have prevented a lot of pain. I um, I don't have any judgment around whether my brother wants anything to do with the church or not, and that would not be the outcome that that I would focus on as you know the the value. The outcome that I think would be most valuable is for the family to be able to see this experience as an opportunity to rally, to build each other, despite what else is happening. It's really powerful. I'm glad you're using the, the example of your brother as you go through this podcast, because it makes it real. And you said something that I wrote down, hopefully is close to word for word. Um, what can we do in our family to create trust that the church can't do? I think that's a good way to look at it. I've always felt the church and Elder Uchtdorf has kind of talked. It's the scaffolding. It's not the core. The core is the family. Yeah. Our doctrine really ports everything to the family, and the family is the, the... And so I think what you just said really resonates with me. And sometimes we look to the church to solve everything, but I think they want to give us principles to then take into our family to solve things that perhaps the institutional church really can't solve and yeah. may even generate mistrust or pain or trauma in just people's lives like your brother. So keep going. Yeah. Well, let's talk about one, um, one other um, issue around trust. Um, and it's, it's called the trust control paradox. And it, it, it's something that is studied in kind of the business or corporate world um, in between uh, as it looks at relationships between like management and employees. Uh, how, how do you, what is trust and what is control? And it's interesting when we really look into the way that um, in families, I think, especially we, we talk about trust, 
I think we're a little bit off. We're talking about control sometimes. Um, there's a there's a marriage and family kind of guru named Terry Real um, who points out that oftentimes what we envision as a good, trusting, safe relationship um, involves just harmony. What is there? Where's the need to trust if we just always have harmony, right? So the research around trust from a, a clinical point of view says, um, well, I'll just read a quote by Terry Real. As a culture, do we do not teach repair. We teach harmony. This is an immature narrative about what healthy relationships look like. True, trust does not come from unbroken harmony. It comes from surviving the whole thing together. Wow. So if we take that idea to the space of the family um, and recognize that there's so much confusion around what trust is, where it comes from, how it's healed. And then we, we look at the way that, um, for instance, we might dialogue about trust. So let's say there's a teenager that, you know, comes home late, breaks curfew. The parents say, we don't trust you now. And this is what you have to do to earn our trust back. Um, that's, it's not, doesn't quite work because what they're describing is we're going to control you again. Essentially, that's what the teenager feels at least, right? We're going to control you again until we can um, believe that we can relax around the possibility that you might do something we wouldn't want you to do. Um, so the, the way we dialogue around trust, I think, creates a lot of confusion. So that's the trust control paradox. Am I saying I, want, I really trust you or am I saying, no, I actually really want to control you? So that I can relax. That's how I'll manage my anxiety around your agency, essentially, right? Um, The harmony piece with that. So let's pull that back in. Um, We love this idea in the church, don't we? In church culture, we just, I think, really, um, really overvalue (laughs) the idea that that a, a happy or good family or a happy or good life um, is, is evidenced by harmony in relationships. And um, that, isn't that a nice idea? And yet, do you know anyone that genuinely, like, that's how things are going? Because I don't. People have stuff. You know, I heard someone that I really admire once just say, she said, you know, we're all just saints with stuff. Like, aren't we though? So, so think of the dissonance that introduces when someone has an experience, whether it's with the church or in a way that they are exercising their agency, um, which disrupts the harmony, right? And then the the family or the parents, let's use a parent-child example again, the child disrupts the harmony. The parents say, no, we don't have trust. No, what you don't have is harmony. You have an opportunity to build trust though. Because if you can lean in and will lean into the dissonance that that space um, offers and see the dissonance as a teacher, what can we learn about each other right now? How do we get through whatever it is that's happening with our kid? You know, why, why did they want to stay out late? Maybe our, you know, maybe our 9 a.m., 9 p.m. curfew is too early, you know, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> 9 a.m., that's, yeah, that probably wouldn't be a good curfew. If we will rework the idea that trust and control have anything to do with each other, lean into the dissonance that agency brings 
into our relationships and recognize that as an opportunity to actually become closer and and increase trust, we're going to be so far ahead in terms of, um, I don't remember the phrase you used, like bring, sir, bringing the, keeping the family circle. Um, however, our culture just really doesn't support that possibility. I love that. Just keep talking. Okay. Well, let me share a few more stories. Um, We like stories. Okay. Um, So these kind of fall under the category of um, ways that, and and I'm going to jump back out to the the general church um, and the confusion I think that members in general overall have around, okay, I'm going to do what what I believe the church is modeling. Um, I think we often confuse the, the church with church culture. That's very easy to do. And, um, and I think there's a lot of blending between church, you know, gospel principles and church culture. So there is some confusion. Um, so I'm going to focus on ways that trust in the, in the church is damaged, right? Um, so we, we give so much power in our lives to the church and its representatives. Um, and should we ever find ourselves in a space where we are, and I'm just going to use the word othered, um, that damages trust. I thought I fit. I don't. My brother was very othered, right? Um, I'm using a story of a very good friend who, um, who's probably around, they're probably around 35 years old when her, her husband told her he's atheist. And that he is, he was, he was just done with the church. Um, and the, the, you know, the ripple effect that this created was so painful. She had enough to think about, you know, and, and yet the, um, I'm going I'm to grab some of her quotes. Um, the, the curiosity rather than the caring that um, was exhibited created a lot of pain, additional pain that was really unneeded. And so the trust in her trust in the church to be a space of nurturing and love and acceptance was challenged a little bit. She said, I think we are caught in very black and white thinking. Uh, We can give permission. um, We could give permission to not feel super comfortable, but we don't. Right. Um, She, she, describes um, people asking her if she was going to get a divorce. And I love her response. She said, um, I don't know what will happen, but I, I love him and I need to build a life with him, assuming that he won't, quote unquote, come back. Um, people who dance around, are you going to stay with him? I just say, what good would that do? Um, Eternal marriage is still what I want. To leave him now would defeat that purpose. Um, that takes a lot of courage, I think, for someone to so so gently and carefully challenge the the rhetoric that is, I think, that that blend of culture and um, and doctrine. Um, she. She gave a talk recently. She was just released as a stake Relief Society president and was asked to speak when she was released. And she um, she introduced herself and said, I want you to know about my family. 
they're the ones that you'll see playing ping pong in the driveway when if when you come up the hill and they would love it if you would stop and visit with them um her ability to be in that space grew because she would lean into the dissonance if she had stayed in the extremes her options would have been so limited i'm going to be in despair unhappily married wishing and hoping for something that I can't control um, in terms of her husband's interest in the church or not. Or she could have done like what I can't believe that people would just ask, like, well, are you going to leave? Um, those, were, those are the only options that the extremes provided. So had she not had the courage to lean in, think of where this family might be now. Now, is her trust in the church damaged? Yeah, of course it is. Um, in part because the church culture um, grows from, I would say, policies more than doctrine. I think we have doctrine, policies, and culture. And I always imagine them as a projector, right? My dad taught me that. Church culture, it, it's more handbook-based than scripturally-based. And the handbook is not doctrine. Um, so, so that's an, and just another example of how trust in the church is damaged. Um, uh, sometimes it's from talks. We can just say it. There are some talks given in, in from leadership that just make you kind of say, ouch. Um, and I do, I can't recall what talk this was. It was years ago. My dad would have been alive. Um, my dad was this lovely He's a BYU professor who was also just a staunch advocate for LGBTQIA um, individuals. And I, I wow. called him once after a talk that was an ouch talk. And he said, you know, it sure is hard to preach contempt and love from the same pulpit. That's all he said. Um, unfortunately, that happens. That happens sometimes. So, thank goodness, I could call my dad. I could lean into the gray and that dissonance and say, what was that? Instead of either telling myself, don't you question that. That's not a, that's not a good idea to question it. You just need to rank and file. You need to get in line. Or to reject it and say, that's it, I'm out. I cannot be part of an organization that teaches something that painful. Go to the middle. That's where, that's where it's at. That's great. I love your phrase, lean into the dissidents. Um, um, I think there's also the yo-yo effect that, that really can damage trust. I think the obvious, most the example that comes most readily is the, the policy around LGBTQ um, families. Um, occasionally, I mean, leaders, I, I mean, the scrutiny that leaders receive I, just makes me so uncomfortable for them <laughs> that being said <laughs> um they have so much power in people's lives and um if a leader you know inadvertently comes across as harsh or judgmental or short um when when someone has invested so much hope in what this leader represents that can be that can damage trust um I've got some, I'm going to read some exact quotes. These, are, these aren't really easy to hear. 
um, they're from a, a young person I know who, um, who has come out to me and not to anyone else. Um, and no one would ever be able to identify who this person is based on their, the way they live their life, um, where they're at. They said this, um, being comfortable going to church depends on who else is in it. That whole performative, we love you, but don't support you just sets me off. The trust crisis is like when people assume they are better than me, they will automatically think of me as less. That makes me not want to be at church. She said, we can't keep doing the same thing again and again. It's causing so many problems. Uh, Let's not pretend right now. Let's not spit out lies. Um, This is a young person who's in a lot of pain, who um, does, does have significant faith in the Savior and whose trust in the institution of the church and in her local unit is pretty much destroyed, right? Well, guess what? Her family could create space for this to, this experience that she's having, these thoughts that she's, that are just running through her mind to not be so threatening that she may differentiate from the church. Sounds like she's kind of on her way. She does not need to lose her family over that. And the family absolutely has, I think, and a stewardship over these relationships. That if I were to say, what's my stewardship as a parent? I would say it's the relationship, not the outcome of. Wow. That's stoppable podcast material right there. (laughs) My responsibility as a parent is the relationship, not the outcome. That is powerful. And that is, feels like it's so much easier to do as a parent. I, as a parent of six kids, I feel like I have more ability to control that. It does take two people to have a relationship. And you do have some situations where even that's not possible. But the outcome to me is not, it's not part of our doctrine to control somebody's outcome anyway. No. That's really powerful and very helpful, Tanya. That makes me want to read a little quote from um, just what you just said from Wendy Ulrich. Do you know who Wendy Wendy is? I don't know her personally, but I really admire her work. Um, she is also a therapist, right? It used to be called the Association of Mormon Counselors and Psychotherapists, but I believe the name was changed after we were asked to um, to refrain from using the term Mormon. So I don't know what it is now. Anyway, she said this before I say this, I should, this is what I would hope that this young person might be able to do. Um, should her family rally someday, she may not need to. If it is as she fears and the family will go to an extreme. Um, I hope that this kind of um, idea goes with her. Like Laban clinging to the brass plates, he does not even value family members, and I would add the institution of the church, who are abusive, neglectful, or addicted, and I would add misguided in their loyalties, sometimes interfere with our knowing what is real about our lives. Those Labans insist that they have exclusive access to what is true, refusing to acknowledge our right to our own reality. Like Laban, they may deny... um, 
us our truths, even though they do not value the truth themselves. When staying in relationships means jeopardizing our trust in our own voice and experience, when the soul life is in danger, sometimes the spirit may may prompt us that our only resource is to take our truths and run. If we'll lean into the dissonance with families, we do not have to do that. No one needs to run. Now they may, individuals may need to run from the church. Um, you interview many of them mm-hmm. that, that the church just cannot provide what their legitimate needs are at this stage of their life. And that's not a criticism of the church. It's just an observation. Um, so anyway, we could go on and on about, I think, ways that, um, ways that trust in the church generally is damaged and ways that that can trickle down into the family space, right? So, so my child has this issue or my neighbor or my friend or my whoever, and I feel like I have to go to one side or the other rather than lean in. Um, that's where trust is damaged. So, um. I just like this topic. You know, I've never been in a training meeting or a a classroom discussion or heard a church talk where someone says, what do we do for people that have been, have lost trust in the church that have been harmed, that have had a harmful experience or traumatic experience? This would be a very logical thing to talk about at church. (laughs) And you would be comfortable talking about it. And, but I think we need to learn in our congregations to have these kind of discussions. So that people that have had a painful, I call it church-generated pain or church-generated trauma, that's happened to me. I've had a couple of really difficult experiences as a committed Latter-day Saint. I did, it was kind of shocking to me to realize that this could happen. And it's obviously given me more empathy and compassion because I recognize it can happen to others since it happened to me. But it's something we never talk about. and. We, and that's why I'm glad your voice is there and others to learn. Maybe that's an invitation from both of us. If you're listening and if you're <clears throat> in a stewardship responsibility in a local ward to consider a talk about, and I think you're going to leave with some quotes, but I think this is something we could talk about in our congregations to just develop tools to navigate helping ourselves or others that have painful church experiences where the institutional side of the church has failed them. So I'll turn it back to you because yeah. you've got more to share and I don't want to run out of time. Oh, you can keep talking. I love everything you say. Um, I think what you what you say, though, maybe is a really good segue into maybe describing a little bit more of what we learn from taking that epigenetic um, development perspective and applying it to what is faith, right? So um, what you point out is the difference between what... Um, what Fowler refers to as the synthetic conventional or stage three faith. You're familiar with this? Yeah. Um, Where, you know, there's a synthesis of values and information. They create a basis for identity and outlook, but it's incredibly rigid. It it actually aligns um, in, in terms of 
if we were to compare it to like brain development or psychosocial development, it's, it's late adolescence, early adolescence is concrete thinking. Um, we're barely into formal operations where we can do um, abstract kind of thinking. And which means necessarily that things tend to be one way or another. Um, and there's a lot of contingencies. If then uh, there's not a um, space for um, paradox and variety and dissonance, right? And and so when someone introduces that that idea or even has a need to be validated for wanting to explore, for progressing in terms of their faith, the um, there tends to be a very big pushback from the, and I'll just, you know, the, we're a stage three church from general membership, right? Who through no fault, no one's fault tend to be in that very rigid space. Um, there's another, you're familiar with, um, last name is Peck. I'm forgetting Scott Peck. He wrote like the road less traveled. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, he he created he kind of built off of Fowler's work and condensed a little bit um, around his stages, made it a little more accessible to someone that doesn't have a like a psychology background. Um, and he said he said, and I'm, I'm quoting him here. Perhaps predictably, there exists a sense of threat among people in the different stages of religious development. So someone who is moving from stage three to stage four, which is, um, which is when you individuate stage four is or reflective. That's what it's called. Individuative or reflective. So this lines up if we're going to look at again, human development with, um, the development of it, your own identity, right? Late adolescence, early twenties, you become your own person. That is essential. It is essential uh, for happiness. That's that's how God created us. I think he he created us to develop in the ways we develop. So someone has an experience. Maybe it's a terrible one, like we've been, you know, referencing. Maybe it's simply they've traveled. Maybe they've known someone who is so different. Um, than anyone they've ever met before in terms of life experiences and perspective. And that draws them into the stage four space where they can say, okay, I know what stage three was about. It's all very symbolic and ritualistic. I wonder what life will be like with less of that, or for some people, none of that. So I would say my brother is at a stage four faith. Um, It's interesting because if you were to ask someone, I think in the church, like just sort of like general, I'm, and I'm, I'm way over generalizing when I say in the church, they would say that he's regressed, right? He has lost faith. When in fact, what we know is he has progressed past stage three faith into the individuative space. Now people can stay here their, their whole lives. People can stay in stage three their whole lives. After um, stage four, we can enter into... um, Now, does stage four mean you're leaving the church, you're out of the church, or can you be a stage four and be in the church? You absolutely can, yes. So, um, you know, stage 
stage four, um, I think is essential for, for growth and you can individuate from your family of origin without completely cutting them out of your life. Right? I had someone tell me once that, um, imagine making like a peace sign, like that's good parenting. So because you've got at the base of the, the two fingers, it's connected. And then gradually they, the, you know, the two fingers separate, but there's still the connection. So absolutely you can be in stage four and still be very much involved in the church. You're just able to differentiate yourself from that rigid, um, we would call it like tacit um, thinking, meaning just really unexplored um, faith. We call it tacit faith. So, One of the things I've picked up that somebody shared is those that are in stage four, or maybe you're going to talk about even stage five, I think it's not like a rank order. It's not like even though they may do this, stage four people shouldn't be, even though they may naturally want to do this, pull three into four. I've heard that some of the very best stage four people recognize that stage three people need to stay in stage three and it's deeply yes. healing yes. and helpful and their life is complicated, yes. but that part of their life, their religious experience needs to be that kind of experience and they don't want the complexity, the nuance, the dissonance. Yes even though they may need those tools later on. Um, and I recognize I left stage three when my lived experiences being a YSA leader over a couple of gay men just opened that door to stage four. That's sort of, and because you kind of gave some examples and that's what really happened for me is when I just listened to somebody who was having a very different experience than I was and it brought me in and there's dissonance and complexity with that and pain with that. Because you kind of want your stage three life back. Right. But just like yeah. that Stake Release Society president, her ability and your ability too to reach people and to minister and to bless and to mourn and comforts, I think increased with the skills that come with the dissonance and the complexity and the nuance. And you're just, your ministry grows and your ability to reach and help and heal grows. And it's, it's a good thing, even though it's a painful thing. Exactly, right? Most things worth doing hurt a little bit, right? <laughs> and I love what you say, though, with be, about stage three. When every stage we treat with respect. Yeah. And um, for so many people, if say they've, you know, say they've come from a chaotic space in their lives, the the routine and the ritual and the that tacit kind of faith. I don't have to explore. I can I can follow, I can believe, I can feel, I can feel harmony. Um, that might be just what someone needs, that safety and predictability. Yeah. Um, and and when that becomes the consensus in terms of church culture, rather than saying, oh, look, we're all at these really cool different spaces yeah. in our spiritual development that's when we're going to run into more trust issues yeah right? i agree so um and and yes let's talk about stage five conjunctive faith cool uh, stage five is um probably where you're at <laughs> stage five is uh it's the idea that you can 
continue to function as your own soul, right? The, that soul journey that, that uh, Wendy Ulrich refers to, that that is not threatened anymore by um, including your stage three faith symbols and rituals in your life. Before stage four, those symbols and rituals, that, that adherence, um, it, li- it was limiting. But after stage four, when you move into that conjunctive space and you've learned who you are, right? And you have maintained your, your personal, most private part of your life is your connection with Jesus Christ and that you know it's still there and you know you can have it and also participate to whatever degree it feels meaningful in that stage three space. Um, and, and so when someone can reach there, it's beautiful. I think it is a little isolating though um, because like I said, the, and I'm going to share a couple more quick stories. You know, I think the examples, um, especially the, the primary, primary president and this other one I'm going to talk about, um, they're stage five people, right? No one would know. They look like stage three people until you, they stand up and give their talk or they walk out maybe if there's something harmful being said. And then there's, again, what Peck points out, there's some suspicion, right? And then it's a little isolating. So can you be in stage five and not have trust with the church generally? Yeah, you probably probably don't because that complete adherence, that kind of rank and file mostly exists for stage three, and that can feel good to some people. Um, but let's say what happens, let's see, say we've got um, a child who is moving into stage four and the parents are quite happy in stage three is like, what's going to happen to trust? That depends if the parents can even try to value what it is their their child is trying to teach them about that about themselves, what the child wants to teach the parent about the child. Um, that's also repairable. And yet, I don't think it happens as often as it could. And LDS families. It's good. Um, let me toss out real quick. We've only a couple more minutes. I do want to tell. Um, I don't know if you had some quotes you wanted to read from a primary president. Oh, I, I did those already. Oh, you did those. Okay. Yeah. Good. No, there was there were a couple. I wanted to talk real quick about one more. Yeah, the last one I want to talk about is a missionary that was um, that was sent home. Um, she she was she had gone through the whole COVID thing, been reassigned, ended up where she'd want, where she was originally called, um, ran into some health issues and, um, and was just told one day by her mission president, you're going to go home. Now she was serving. She didn't want to go home. She was serving in a place that had, she had great access to medical care. Her parents didn't want her to come home. And, um, this would be an example of one of those times where the churches, um, the church applies its formula to a situation rather than um, being able to focus on the individual. Um, this family uh, really has struggled. 
um, with the way that this this was managed, that it was it was um, so they felt so insensitive um, that it was very insensitive. So um, where does this tie into what we're talking about with the whole trust thing? The family doesn't have a trust issue together. They're all very united in the way that this um, in their perspective around what happened. Um, what does a family do when together they recognize limitations in the church's ability to support? Um, that's a difficult space to be in because there are so many loyalties to the church and so much gratitude for the church. And yet, you know, you hurt my kid. <laughs> um so this family has a difficult task because they need to heal the trust that has been violated uh, in with like with the church. It's not within the family. The family's doing great, but together the family is saying, I don't know about this church now, right? So what do they do? That is that is one of the things that I wanted to look at. Um they're in a they're in a hard spot. I don't know. What would you tell that family? I'm going to let you keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, unfortunately, this experience got kind of worse and worse. There were um, there were little things from kind of just like that gentle misogyny, like that she was referred to as, you know, we'll say his name is Bob, Bob Sweetie, instead of using her, her name. Um, it's just kind of those kinds of things. And by the end of it, they, they were really hurting to the point that they were saying, what do we do as a family with this church? They, um, last I talked to them, <laughs> don't plan to leave. However, they will, um, they will continue to hurt is what they will do. There's this, when we, and we're going to talk about ways to repair trust. There's this problem that shows up when the, the damage is done between the general church and an individual, or in this case, a family. And it's the, the, it's the betrayer that can help the betrayed heal. Like, if we could have that, so much could change, right? So this family is going to remain in the church and hold a, a deep level of mistrust for it um, because the betrayer can't help the betrayed heal just because of the way that the organization is is created. What can I do? So I'm their friend, right? I can make sure that they can trust me, that they are safe to talk about whatever it is that hurts, and that I will not judge them. I have no um, desire to influence whatever decisions they make. Um, I can, in some ways, I can't totally... I mean, obviously, I can't help them heal around what happened between them and the church. But as someone who loves them, I can pull in the other pieces of ways to heal trust and reassure them that not every relationship um, is fraught with that um, vulnerability. I love what you said. Yeah, all of us can do that. It's part of our baptism covenants. Um, probably you're particularly good at because your clinical training and all your expertise. But what you did 
all of us can do. And um, I like that. I, I think of my natural reaction 10 to 20 years ago, 10 years ago in those situations would be to defend the church mm-hmm. and perhaps minimize their experience by saying you're overthinking this or you're too easily offended. We have talks about not getting offended. Yeah. And I would, my older self, after hearing enough of these stories and having clinical people probably mentor me as just sit with them in their pain. And it doesn't. I don't have to sell out the church to do that. I just sit with them and honor their pain and validate their pain. And often it decreases the wedge between them and the church just to have somebody sit with them in their pain and acknowledge it and validate it. And it usually, in my experience, doesn't sort of add fuel to the fire. It, It usually is part of the path to healing. Now, I recognize in an ideal world, you're pointing out the institutional church generally doesn't come to the plate to be the healer, even though they're the betrayer. We're just not at a stage in our church where we're apologizing and we're, we are a little bit sometimes on some of the things we've said with, about Black Latter-day Saints in the past. And, but I think we, but, it, but us rank and file members can do the best we can. And we're in a situation when someone opens up, I would just invite us to do what you're doing is just sit with people and be a safe place that they can open up, especially because the church is a place we usually turn to to be healed because our trauma is outside of the church. Mm-hmm. And so that's the safe place. But if the safe place becomes the place of trauma or pain, just like this missionary that was out on the Lord's errand consecrating her life, I think you said her to the church, and that then becomes the source of pain. It gets complex to turn back to the, and that's where the Savior comes in and good friends you, and exactly. therapy. Yeah. Um, and at the local level, often we can sort of be the bridge to rebuild trust or to just acknowledge that it may never be the same, but we still want you with us. Yeah. Well, I want them with me. I want them I, with I you. Don't speak for the church. I don't know. I'm I not like that. I'm not the church. Um, and I don't have an agenda to keep anyone close or far. Um that is between them and Christ. Um so I hope that's okay to toss that in there. I think non-agenda love that's your jam, isn't it? <laughs> that's a pretty good motto. I just think that accomplishes more good than agenda love. <laughs> yes, exactly. So real quick, um, to, to wrap up, um, ways to repair trust. Um, and the church will probably not be able to offer these things. Um, but we can do this. Again, we can help people heal who have been, have had their trust damaged or within our families. Uh, we can do these things. We've got to listen. The person who's been hurt, they, they just need to be heard and validated. And, and with the, listening with that intent to genuinely understand. Um, not in a way of prove it to me. Sometimes that when we say help me understand, it's almost like prove it. It's just, please, please let me hold some of this for you for a minute. Um, if we are the ones who have violated trust, which we've all done, hate to say it, we've all done it, um, be open to just recognizing it and take take responsibility, take ownership and accountability, um, trying to pretend that we haven't done anything wrong, like gets us nowhere and is so, so damaging to relationships. Um, 
and and it's a two-way street you know if if i can say show up and say i am so i am so sorry that what i did was hurtful to you um ideally that person could again feel safe and um and because it's been modeled that it's safe to take ownership and whatever space they need to go take ownership they might be more inclined to do that so not only do we offer it we model it right um uh, i talked to to one uh, another friend she's a marriage and family therapist um she said re, you know repairing trust is takes talking talking and more talking um that's not stage three. <laughs> it's just not. We tend to go to one side or the other. We kind of, you know, there's a sense of closing ranks, as it were, at times. And uh, but talking, talking, and talking, let's do that in stage four and five. It's safe to talk. Um there's I'm gonna quote Terry Real again, the, the marriage and family researcher. As recovery is today, in this moment, I am not going to withdraw. That's the talk, talk, talk. That's how we restore trust. I am here. I'm not going to pull away. Um, and then I kind of like to pull in the idea that, you know, we are commanded to forgive, right? Think about Nephi. He did frankly forgive. There it was. Um, we're not commanded to trust. Um, they're comp- that to me just highlights how completely differently we can um, benefit from studying these principles. Um, Repairing trust is going to take a while, and it's going to be so uncomfortable sometimes. And I believe it is essential for healthy relationships and for a church that values family as much as we do to me that is um it's a beautiful invitation to strengthen the family in a way that hasn't really been talked about or modeled so it's an isaiah it's my one of my favorite ones isaiah 40 where he talks about um in fact i'm going to read it real quick let me open it up um isaiah chapter 40 verses 28 through 31 this is i'm going to wrap up with this with the idea that it is true that when we have today at least it is true at this point that when we when the betrayer cannot be the one to offer healing to the betrayed christ is always there it would be nice if in every situation the betrayer could be um, an element there to that healing. Um, Christ is bigger than any pain we will ever experience from betrayal and from having our trust damaged. And and there's, there's no need to fear, I think, because of that piece that we know. Um, so when I... Um, so I'm just going to read from Isaiah. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? 
that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Waiting upon the Lord is a little bit like trust. Um, So that's kind of where I wanted to wrap it up. Thank you. Great scripture. Um, I'd like to ask you a question or two. Um, Talk to parents um, who are really hurting right now because their kids have left the church. Um, Their kids are off the covenant path, whatever language. They're worried about their eternal family now being together. They're just full of fear and their original hopes with little kids now that their adult kids has changed and they're just really hurting. Yeah. And I know clinically you meet with those kind of parents. Um, just talk to those parents right now that have got, that are in that situation. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so what those parents are experiencing is, is grief and, um, Research around grief says that it is so important that we mourn our dreams. So I hold that baby and I have, you know, it's all planned out. I already know what's going to happen, right? I've got this dream and it doesn't happen that way. I don't, I don't know anybody for whom that has been the case. Um, mourning dreams, the level of grief there is, is similar to that of bereavement. So of death, right? So maybe the fear is if I need this space to mourn who, you know, who my, that my child isn't what I imagined they would become, right? They're not who I envisioned. Can I also love my child? The answer is yes. Yes. Definitely make space to mourn whatever dreams um, need to be. Um, just tenderly, tenderly treated and hold space for all of the love that you've ever had for that child to, to remain. It doesn't need to be threatened. Um, now, this is hard, so easy to say, so hard to do. And um, I am going to pull in, I think, a piece of just to acknowledge how vulnerable these families are socially. Um, there's a lot of social capital exchanged in LDS communities. Um, and, you know, let's, let's say one of their kids is, let's say they're dealing with addiction. Suddenly no one will let their kids play at their house with their other children. Um, let's say, let's say they have a child that is is gay or trans um people avoid them they don't want to talk to them anymore they're suspicious so the levels of loss are you know many deep they're losing community they're losing um these dreams right their relationship with their child is changing which can be scary um and their relationship with God and the church is probably undergoing some change too. So um, 
you know, these, these parents know, like if I had one thing to say, it would be, you are so loved and you are doing so well. This is so hard. And anything that is worth it is hard. But I love that. I love that you give permission to have grief. I think that's part of healing. And I love that concurrent with that, you get you invite parents to love their kids and trust their kids. And I think we just trust God that they're their children too, and that God has a plan and eternity's a long time. And just to leave all of that at the Savior's feet and do the things we could control. Yeah. Take care of ourselves yep. and keep our family circled together. Yeah. But you do help me understand some of the other complexities of this in our culture. I find that I don't do a good job of asking parents in our own ward who I know their kids have left the church, just tell me about your child. What are they doing? They're often doing really wonderful yeah. things. Academically, um, service, they're often usually really wonderful people doing wonderful things, but we yep. tend to drift towards the things that we talk about, like, you know, Tell me about their temple marriage. Tell me about how many their kids are. And there's a lot of other things we can talk about to help see people um, the way I think God sees them and sees all their contributions in the world that help improve our culture that way. So these parents still feel their children are being seen by their faith community and supported even if they're not in the church. Yes, I, I had someone tell me once that they... Um... They're, they had a child that um, was, this was a parent of a gay individual, and um, someone came up and asked about every other kid. Yeah. <laughs> not, <clears throat> not the gay child. And she just was shaking her head. I mean, she was able to handle it just fine. But, I mean, you are right. The, there, are, um, there are some big blind spots. Right. And, and also, we're all trying. It's okay. But can we always do a little, little bit better? Yeah. Right? I don't need to feel defensive that my trying isn't reaching far enough. I just want to keep trying until, until maybe I um, do a little better each time. Uh, can I say something really quickly Please. to anyone who is in a space where they are feeling isolated because of um, either trust crisis or faith crisis um, if if at all possible um, try to reach out to anyone who seems safe if your family can't be that space right now that is okay but um, whatever it is that you're going through is part of God's plan for your development spiritually. And um, don't feel shame or that you're less than or that you um, can't fit because um, none of that's true. Same for those, same as, same words as for the parents. You are so loved. Love that. Well, listeners, we 
we could keep going on these podcasts because I get really into the things that my guests say and it kind of gets my brain and my heart going and um, it's pretty sacred ground. But Tanya Baker Miller, you're awesome. You don't probably want to hear that label, but um, you have wonderful principles and insights to help us come together and help support minister bear and comfort in the role of therapists, which I think is somewhat underrepresented in the culture of our church and your skills and insights. And my personal hope is that that can, that grows and that, that understanding becomes more part of our culture. I think there's a lot of businessmen like me that are, are part of our culture and sort of our worldview. But I think to create Zion, we need the, the lived experience of, of, maybe a more balanced set of skills and the contributions. So that's sort of my plug for therapists. I would <laughs> I almost wonder if I should redo my <laughs> career if I'd done it differently, but that's a little bit of a tangent, but just thanks for what you're doing. Thank and you. For individually in your therapeutic work and in your circle of influence and the principles you've shot, shared in this podcast. And grateful to have your husband here, your son, Andy here, please listeners check out Andy's podcast. 382, he talks about his journey as a gay Latter-day Saint, one of my brave, vulnerable guests that had the guts to share his story. And you're some of my heroes, Andy, and and others. And so this is Richard Osler and Tanya Baker-Miller signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>